suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Oh, welcome back, dear listener. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 300. Welcome aboard if you're in the chat room. Say hello and make some comments. We'll try and get to you if we can. I, of course, am Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist, with me as always, Paul the Twelfth Man. Greetings, Earthlings. Shay the Subversive. (laughs) Yes, hello. Joe the Tech Guy. Evening all. Right. You know what? Let's just jump straight into it. Um, uh, No mucking around. We've got 31 topics on my list to get through. So, yeah, on the list, we're going to talk about the Biloela family. We're going to talk about Israel and Palestine. Oh, a bit about um, Deliveroo, a bit about uh, Spanish stamps, a bit about Dark Emu, a bit about uh, Friendly Geordies, a whole range of topics. Boris Johnson's marriage, uh, Israel Falau's back, vaccine incentives. Uh, there's a thousand topics there. Let's get into them. Well, the big news, I think, of the last few days has been the Billa Wheeler family and how they've been uh, sent off to Christmas Island and one of the children got very sick back to Western Australia and um, really... You know, there's two sides to the story, isn't there? It seems, on the one hand, there are a group of people who would say, we have laws in this country as to who's allowed in and the circumstances under which they're allowed, and these people don't meet the criteria, therefore they should be sent back. And then there's the other group which would say, well, uh, this is a good case for an exception because of various reasons of justice and humanity and fair go. Really, that's sort of the two arguments. Thoughts panel on on the Billowheeler family. Far away. After you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I just think it's uh, it's been pretty barbaric. It's been pretty long-winded and it's been really unnecessary. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to carry on like this. And frankly, um, I wonder how the international community responds to this because my experience of serving and taking care of Australians for the past 10 years is that we're a generous, welcome, welcoming, considerate bunch. Not This is not an accurate or adequate representation of Australians. Mm-hmm. And so I think our policies should be kind and benevolent like the Australians I experienced. Mm-hmm. And what and about... This isn't. What about the fear of this opening the floodgates to the boats sort of... Uh, Haven't we shown that we mm. will shut international borders? Mm. Are we really still fearful of this threat? Mm. We've shut shut the world out. Yes. So I don't think there's a leg to stand on We're pretty there. good at keeping people out <laughs> <laughs> if we put our mind to it. That's all right. We just stop the planes. We stop the planes and the boats and everything. Yep. So, yeah, yep. I'm not concerned. Okay. 
rather than me provide a contrary opinion just off the top of my head. <laughs> go as on. A means go of, ahead. Of, I was doing Please. it to some extent, wasn't Good. I? Um, well, that there's two so, sides yeah, of the so, story. So yes. what do you yeah. think about the um, contraview? Uh, like the hard legal argument that they haven't met the criteria and therefore they should be shipped back. Um, uh, look, you know what? A few years ago, I might have agreed with it, but I've gone soft uh, in recent <laughs> times. <laughs> but here's my reasoning. Yeah. Um, well, for a start, from a legal point of view, under the Act, there is a ministerial discretion under yeah. the Act. So basically... But there, there's always ministerial yeah. discretion. And why is that there? Because there could be extenuating circumstances. Yeah. Um, in case look- somebody's au pair needs a visa. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. And that's a very important reason for having it. <laughs> exactly. Good call, Joe. <laughs> But the reason you have a ministerial uh, sort of discretionary um, um, part to a lot of decision-making mm. is sometimes <clears throat> things don't actually fit neatly into a box mm. and you might just decide that in the interests of justice where you really don't want to provide hard and fast rules but just because of the vibe um, and because of other things that you you can't foresee, you just want to say, you know what, here's a discretion and there might be times when we pull the trigger on that. And so from a purely legal point of view, what's the point of having a ministerial discretion if not to use it? And um, I've been reading a bit and I'm going to be, okay, I promised this last week, but I'm going to do my justice one definitely this week. It's definitely going to happen. But in terms of just what's just, um, uh what I'm considering in this is what sort of society are we encouraging and what sort of culture are we encouraging when we can be just cruel to people and belligerent and treating people the way we wouldn't want to be treated if it was us. So if we, when you start sort of locking people up without trial and in this case they're having the full trial, but when you start... Um, being really hard on people who are not Australians, before you know it, you develop a, a sort of an atmosphere, well, this might eventually happen to Australians. So, mm-hmm. for example, part of our, um, you know, we refuse to allow the Australian citizens in India back into the country because of COVID-19. And part of the genesis of that is we spent a lot of time telling people you're not allowed in here being foreigners it's only one more step to say to actual Australians, uh, we're not letting you in either because of different circumstances. Like you create an atmosphere um, and a culture of belligerence and cruelty that isn't necessarily a good thing. So that's kind of the way I'm leaning on this. But, Paul, I, I, can't, I can't pick you on this one, Paul. By the phrases really? you're pulling, I don't know. <laughs> what Can you gonna... usually pick me? It's hard. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Okay, look, I... Um... I don't feel any personal animosity towards these people mm. at all. In, in fact, I feel quite a lot of sympathy for them. Mm. But I did read an interesting piece on the issue by Amanda Vanstone, who, as you know, was Minister for Immigration for about four years mm. in, in one of the Howard governments. And she, 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 she basically ended the piece by saying... If they're allowed to stay, I don't have a big problem with it. 
But she also said, look, um, there are a lot of people who'd like to come and live in Australia. Mm. And a lot of them apply offshore. Mm. If they're rejected, they have no choice. They have to wear it. They mm. just have to accept the decision. She said, these these people, these this particular couple, came here separately, I believe. Mm. Yes. They met here and became a couple here uh, while their application for residency or for some whatever visa they were applying for mm. was not settled. Mm. So she said, why would you, knowing that there was a pretty good chance you wouldn't be allowed to stay in the country, you would have to relocate overseas, why would you then have two children? Mm-hmm. Um, it could have been just, you well, know, nature taking its course. They should have just frozen their or, eggs mm-hmm. um, and waited <laughs> Sorry, for to be settled in, in 30 years. Right. I don't was... think that added anything to the argument. Sorry, Joe. But... Um, no, she said basically, why would you then get, you know, go and have kids unless you were trying to manipulate the system? Because she said, mm. you know, people. Well, well maybe people, they thought they were going to be successful. Well, um, she, well, she made the point that they were legally in limbo. Yeah, but when you say why would they, the, the okay. answer to that would be because they thought they were going to get allowed in. That would be. Mm. Well, maybe not, because she said mm. clearly a lot of people. A lot of people know that, you know, once you've got kids, you know, it, mm. it's so much easier to build a case for sympathy, mm. you know. And so mm. it could have been a very deliberate act on their part to have kids because they knew it would generate mountains of sympathy for them. Mm. Um, even prior to them having any idea that they would be allowed to stay. She said also... What if you, as an Australian, and you want to go and live in another country? I don't know what country. Think of an example. I don't know. Maybe you want to go and live in the, in the United States. Or Iceland. Or... I'd like to go. Iceland. Iceland. Okay. You go to Iceland. Okay. Maybe on a tourist visa, mm. and then you think I'll just I'll just overstay my visa. I'll go underground. You know, I'll do mm. odd jobs, whatever I need to do to stay. And then they catch you, and you say, "Look, I want to apply for per- permanent residency." Mm. And you know, I don't know what sort of system Iceland has, whether it's similar to Australia where there's a long legal process to go through. But, you know... They don't, um, get, a lot, they don't, get, they don't get a lot of boat people in Iceland. And they probably don't. List. <laughs> but apparently it's a pretty nice place to live, although quite mm. expensive. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you applied and then they said, no, you can't stay, you have to leave, you, you'd accept it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't then try and play the system. Yeah, the problem with that argument is I'm coming from a Western... First world country, well, and so I'm not desperate. And my circumstances, when I'm sent back to Australia, are not grim. That's they? true, but we cannot, as as a country, have a policy where everybody who'd like to come here can come here. Yeah, we, I agree we, with that. We, we so, just cannot do that. So I guess my position would be that I still think we should be turning boats back and not allowing them to come across and doing our best to stop them. Do you know how this couple arrived in Australia? Because I'm not even I, sure. I don't know. Did they come on a boat I'm, I'm or did they fly it. in? Yeah, huh? I don't know. So I'm just reading it. But, but I'm, I'm also, also sort of stopping boats from coming mm. and setting up systems both in Indonesia and on the water to sort of um, to, to stop it. Because there would be a lot of boats come across if nothing was done. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they, they arrived yeah, by there'd be in 2012. By boat, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. By boat, yeah. did they? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But, but once they make it... Then I think uh, 
that's a point at which you have to... Once they make it. Yeah, if they can get through, really? yeah, if they can run the gauntlet and get through it, then I sort of think, well, at that point, we have to treat them according to different rules. So that would be my cutoff point. Uh, I mean, what do you think of the American system where, uh, where babies born in America get automatic citizenship? Do you think that's a bad or a good rule? I don't have really a strong opinion on that. And I know it's not the case in Australia. You know, mm. you can you can have a baby in mm. Australia. It doesn't necessarily mm. become Australian citizen. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think I think Amanda Vanstone makes some pretty good points. You know, she said basically, if you've got a set of rules to, for your immigration system to to formalise, you know, an orderly system, and you've got to have you've got to have criteria of some kind, mm-hmm. and these people have repeatedly mm. failed the criteria. Mm. They've repeatedly failed, and, not and, just once, and, and do you worry? but repeatedly. And they've got these children now mm. and they know and they've got community support. It attracts a lot of sympathy. But they've been here for eight years now and, yes. and they're That's, still not settled? Well, they may be settled in, in a physical sense. You, but they've been rotting the system. And maybe basically. the problem is we're not making decisions on visas quickly enough. Well, that might be true too. Do you worry about the culture that this creates where we're, where we're in, imprisoning and... people on a remote island? I don't, and then, I don't and think the, it's a good, and, a good thing and, at all. And, do you worry? and I, I personally, Shay, I, I don't care what people yeah. in other countries think about Australians due to our yeah. immigration law. But, we have our immigration law. We've got to have a system. Yeah. What other people think of it is but, their but problem, you, not ours. Do you worry the, about the, the rhetoric around mm. people plotting their lives in Australia seems like part of the narrative of Australians being xenophobic. Like, mm. really, someone would go to that length to stay in Australia? They'd be like, ooh, let's have a baby, with everything that comes with actually having a baby. That's the yes, case we're making. Would. Yes, absolutely. Right. Some people would have babies. Well, I don't think that's valid. For, but people have babies for all kinds of I know. reasons, you know. And that's they're right, not, they're not always Which is not always right. what we would think are mm. legitimate reasons in terms of, you know, Having a baby to manipulate a legal system, I, you know, I don't think that should be rewarded if that is the case. Yes, which they is not provable. Not provable, but it could well be the case, you know. But I, yeah, strange. Mm. People have had babies for stranger reasons than that. Mm. <laughs> I just think that is flawed. If you're really going to make a case for responsible immigration policy that we're going to use that tactic as the possible fear that people are not being responsible about whether or not they choose to be parents as how we state the case. That's not the criteria. I know, but you seem to be making that that is a valid point that we have to consider when formulating immigration policy. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that's what our legal system has to consider. I'm saying that... It could well be the case that that couple well, if our legal system consciously isn't considering it, then that, that why couple are we? consciously decided that that would further their case. In that case, they are using the children as tools. We have no idea whether that's the we case we though. don't know we don't know. But um, longbow, you know. Mm. As for longbow. people thinking we're xenophobic, who gives a fuck? You know, mm. they can think what they like. Mm. I don't think we. We, because we, we base aren't. our self-image the point was we aren't. on what we think we other people aren't. think of us. Some of us we? are, mm. but that we Some aren't. Some of us are what? 
xenophobic, but a lot of us aren't. That's my point. So what? Not that I care what the international community is, is that mm. it's inaccurate. Mm. That's what, what I care what about. What does it matter if a, a small number of Australians are xenophobic? I think you'll find that's no, no. true No, no, my in point is country. not that a small amount are xenophobic, that the majority aren't. And consequently, our policy and our legislation should consider that. How is it relevant? It is relevant because, as a country, we should be in line with how our people are and what we represent. We are in line with it. Except for that we're espousing harmful views about possible plotted pregnancies so, as a reason so to stay. Shay's saying, you're not exactly. espousing a view. Shay's, you are espousing Shay's, a borrowed no, no, view. No, no, I think you misunderstand the word espouse. Shay's saying <laughs> there's a misrepresentation that um, people will think Australians are assholes. Who cares what they think? When when it's it's not a reflection of who we are, So what? what she's saying. Let them think what they like. So, well, are we that sort of people? I don't are we think the, so. But are we the sort of people who, it seems who we spend are. six million dollars? No, are we the sort of people who will spend six million dollars to reopen a facility on a remote island <sighs> and and lock up yeah. a small family of Tamils who were well accepted by the community that they were in? Like, are, and are we going to let that happen? It's and a tangled not, web. I and agree. Not, and not at some point say, "Stop! This is not." It's a very tangled web. This is not it, fair. It, perhaps another side of the argument mm. would be mm. they should have de- been deported sooner, mm. you know? Mm. Would that have been a better solution? Deport no. them sooner before they had the kids. Mm. I think to mm. keep their reputation mm. up, they could have taken better care of them while they're on Christmas re- Island. Why does reputation come into it? What's reputation got to do with it? It's a matter of law. I just think it's mm. important. But it's a matter of law. It's a matter of process. Mm. That's that's all it's yeah. about, really. Mm. Well, that's not what well, you brought well, here. Well, Why has law suddenly yeah, become so yeah, important yeah. to you? <laughs> of course it's important. We're talking about immigration. Right. Immigration is governed by the, the immigration laws that we institute in our parliament. Yeah. We anyway, don't just oh, make it up as we go along, you know, go. according to who has a sad face and who's had a couple of pups, you know. Fun fact. That is like... So unfair, considering what they've been through. They spent ten days saying Lots this little kid. Of people go through much, much worse than those people. But, but this is very unnecessary. What they're going through, like this. this of is, course, it's unnecessary. Lots of things in life but, are unnecessary. But, but not. It would only be a small number of Aussies who have gone through anything like what this family's gone through. So what? What does well, that have to do with anything? Have. You only just said lots have. I'm not talking about Aussies. I'm talking about people who want to come and live in Australia. There are thousands of people in Indonesia, Mm. in uh, you know, waiting who have applied to migrate. Well, I'm not saying they should all be allowed in because no, I I know you're not not saying that. But Shay seems to be saying that you know, because it's so cruel what they've been going through. We should allow them to stay here. Yes. Well, yeah. So that is exactly not, what I'm saying. Why not? Why not invite all those thousands of refugees in Indonesia who are going through pretty hard times too? Why not invite them in too? Because they've had a hard time. Well, we don't invite okay. people just because yes. they've had let's a hard a, time. Let's... That's just not the criteria. Well, we, okay, okay. We use. So, all right. Um, I'm not in favour of a fully open border because I just see a disaster Thank if, Christ if, for if that. it's the case. But are you in favour of a fully open border, Shay? Like, uh, I mean, are you prepared? Do you think we should? Well, we've got agents on the ground in Indonesia mm-hmm. who are in the villages 
sniffing around who's got a boat ready to go, mm. uh, ringing uh, our authorities and saying, there's a boat leaving on Tuesday mm. from this village, keep an eye out for it, all that sort of stuff. Should we have people doing that and should we have patrols near the edge of our territory that are turning people back here? Or you, because I would have to say I agree with that policy because I I could sense that we would get thousands of boats. We would have as, tens of thousands yeah. of people arriving every year, yeah. tens of thousands. Yeah. So what do you think? Well, I just think, I just think it needs to be looked at to mm. see if we can do it with more dignity and more humanity. Mm. That's pretty fuzzy language. I, I, I think a regional process. Well, why don't you give me a chance to go back over all the immigration policies and get back to you in okay. two weeks mm. about how I feel about it. Okay. And then, but do you and agree then you with? You can just argue with me anyway. The Green Senator Sarah uh, Harper Young. Hanson Young. Oh, Hanson Young. Mm. Sorry. Um, that we I don't should know have what open she said. borders. Well, she seems to think we should just let anyone who can get here to come and stay. Mm-hmm. She has said that a number of times, I believe, in mm. recent years, hasn't she? I don't know. Yeah, but, I, don't um, know I recall. Either. Tom, the warehouse guy, says you don't want to do a Merkel. So in What's German, oh, uh, Merkel, Angela yes. Merkel, of course, allowed a million <laughs> refugees oh, in. Gosh. Um, but, well, okay. I think, was that like a one-off, one million, and then it's since stopped? Is it kind it of what's was also, I think, the part of the world they came from mm. and some of the attitudes they brought with them yes. was the concern. Yes. And what's been the impact? Oh, huge on German people. Like, mm. for instance? Women being raped, people being murdered. You know, not thousands and thousands of Germans being murdered, obviously, but the, there have been a number the, of The accusation was attacks. that there were a lot of young men who came in who had grown up in a very paternalistic society and were suddenly thre- thrust into a Western society yeah. Uh, and were acting out as if they were in their home country. Exactly. Um, and behaving to women in a way that wasn't acceptable. Exactly. What, what? And uh, there, there was a, a notable incident. It was Christmas or New Year or something like that in a city in Germany. And there were, it, was, it was quite common for you know, young people to come out and congregate in this big square near... Oh, that was in Cologne. Cologne, was it? Mm, mm. And there were groups of young migrant men uh, from these, um, you know, culturally Which is in Muslim... France, right? No, Germany. We Cologne. Uh, yeah, Cologne. Oh, no, it's you're in right, Germany. 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 Yeah, yeah. And um, a number of young women were not just molested, some of them were raped mm. that night. Because mm. they, they were going out, young German women, you know, like Australian women... They dress, you know, in whatever they feel like dressing like. They feel that they're free, you know, that they're uh, entitled to go out and walk around unaccompanied at night. And and a whole bunch of them mm. were seriously uh, We are assaulted. always so appalled by sex crimes when it's done by refugees. No, no. Always well, so appalled. Uh, well, look, the point is, as Joe made clear, that these young men grow up in cultures or have grown up in cultures where young women do not have that freedom and that you know that those rights to just you know be autonomous individuals and wander around at night, and they treat them like fair game. Mm. They really do. Ayan Hersi Ali has written about this extensively, and mm. she's got a new book there, out. There, there is a the danger topic. of a clash of cultures. Um, mm. uh, yeah, there is that danger. But you know, if you really want value for money in helping 
refugees, you would actually spend money on the ground in the poorer countries because Absolutely. for $1,000 you can buy a lot of stuff in a poor country that will keep somebody going. But yeah. our refugee foreign aid, well, at least our foreign aid has dropped dramatically since Julie Bishop was in charge and we're quite miserable when it comes to providing foreign aid. But anyway, enough of that topic. We'll move on to another one and... Um, uh, Let's just talk about um, uh, yep. So that was that. That um, oh, just the guy who's going to make that decision is Alex Hawke. He's the minister, uh, the immigration minister. Uh, who's Alex Hawke? Is he a reasonable guy? Can You're a fan, him? apparently, aren't you, Trevor? <laughs> Big fan. He's a Pentecostal. Um, oh well, he must be a terrible person. He was raised an Anglican, and he's attracted to the Hillsong Church. Um, <laughs> He is, I'll, I'll quote uh, some of the things he said is, do I inject my religion into my politics? No, but my religion guides the values and the ethics of the things I do. The two greatest forces for good in human history are capitalism and Christianity, and when they're blended, it's a very powerful duo. People say it's a broad church. My response is that you've got to agree it, it is a church. It's not a brothel, for instance. If people want to legalise jug injection rooms, lower the age of consent, Go with all these trendy things. This is not the party that believes in those things. We're not that broad. So that's the guy making the decision about the uh, Bill Wheeler family. Good luck uh, with that. Um, I don't think he's really um, authorised to make such a sweeping statement on behalf of the entire Liberal Party of Australia, frankly. No, but he's given his own personal view. Yeah. And uh, it just always fascinates me that, would Jesus recognise these people as Jesus' followers, you know, if, if Jesus existed? Um, Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so that's that. Um, but look, that's an interesting uh, thing. And, um, you know, I'm a long-term atheist and I don't buy this religious bullshit mm. any more than you do. However, um, I'm open to the argument that Christianity has influenced our, our moral structure in uh, even secular Australia or secular Western countries, I mm. think that's almost undeniable. Well, given there's a lot of Christians. No, I don't just mean for practising Christians. Right. I mean for our secular society now. Where did right. our values come from? I think to some degree. I wouldn't say completely because, like you, I'm just, just more name, into name en- enlightenment. One, just name one value. That Forgiveness. Got, that wasn't around before... Um, Forgiveness Before yeah. Christianity It wasn't right. um, Well my reading of history Is it was probably Somewhat scarce right. It's pre- It looks pretty scarce At the moment Sometimes If we're looking at The Bill Wheeler family <laughs> Yeah exactly But like you You went what? to a, You went to a Catholic school right And you were Indoctrinated Right Now you've rejected it As an adult And you might have Even rejected it As a child I'm not sure Uh Shay, did you have any religious instruction as a child? Yes. Um, At school? Grew up, yeah, Catholic, went to Catholic schools, went to Sunday Mass every week. Mm. Joe? Uh, all public schools in the UK, private schools, sorry, state schools are Anglican. They're all Anglican? <laughs> they are all. Oh, right. Or, or, yeah. Sorry, were when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you did get in religious Absolutely. instruction. Look, I'm inclined to think that we all imbibed something of the Christian ethic, unconsciously, frankly, I, I, I think. 
Forgiveness, you're yeah. saying, is a Christian ethic that wasn't around before. Oh, I, th- I think for me, cr- forgiveness is one of the Christian ethics that I can sort of think, yeah, you know, that's that's not just, a not a bad value to have, and just, I can divorce it from the religious um, teachings. Vicarious redemption. <laughs> Ooh, I'd have to think about that. But something like the Golden Rule, for example, yeah, was around a long time before Christianity and developed. Are you sure, and, and yes. isn't in the Bible. Yes, thousands of years in, beforehand in all human cultures. Uh, in many human cultures, and 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 in the same way that cultures that developed independently of Christianity, e.g., China. Yeah. Developed civilizations. But is forgiveness where, part of the golden rule? Before you go no, on, no. But I'm giving it as an example of of what we consider a moral sort of attitude or mm-hmm. a key moral that do unto others as you'd like to be treated yourself. Yeah, but that's not the same as forgiveness, is it? No, but I'm, I'm giving it as an example mm. where I know for a fact that the golden rule is was the notion of the golden rule was around, around a long time before Christianity. Mm. And are you suggesting that cultures around the planet that were not touched by Christianity did not have forgiveness? No, I'm not saying that. So it can but arise. Saying, so it can arise independently of Christianity. Of course, it can. Yep. But so where did it, could, it come from so, in our case? Yeah, yeah. In our culture. So, so it could well have, it w- could well have developed in our culture and have been adopted by Christianity. Do you think? Hey, it might have been a pagan Why not? ethic that was Why co-opted. Not? Well, well, well See, because has Christianity ever copied anything from anybody before? Of course, it has. Well, exactly. <laughs> Like you could say, but that was forgiveness did, one of the things well, they copied? Well, well, Judaism did it have forgiveness in it or not? I don't think not, it did, really. Not, frankly, not, I don't not. think it was a um, what would you say a prominent mm. ethic in Judaism? Is mm. my reading? Mm. I could be wrong, but mm. it seems to me that and and I've read other people say that for, the act of forgiveness was one of the quite odd and different things about Christianity when it came along as a mm. kind of as a as a religion. You know, it was sort of a little bit. Different to most because basically ancient peoples often weren't very forgiving. You know, they'd go into a place, they'd kill everyone. You know, there wasn't a lot of forgiveness around in a lot of societies. Is right. My they, reading. They didn't reach a point at times where, oh, okay, I'm over it. Like, well, they might have. But yeah. what I'm saying is, uh, forgiveness okay. was a really, really important um, principle in Christianity. Uh, okay. And he, here's what I'm saying is it could easily develop independently and be adopted by. Christianity and sure, Christianity has been a carrier of the notion of forgiveness because Christianity has been in our culture. Okay, but I'm I'm quite clearly conf- you don't want to give Christianity credit for anything good. No, I that's don't, the feeling I, I, I get. I, I don't want so, to give it any credit that it doesn't deserve. Well, do you give it credit for anything good, anything positive at all? Look, uh, y- yes. What? There would be some people, for example, who really hit the skids in jails, for example, who find God yeah. and who who find a purpose that they stop a lot of um, really bad habits because of a finding of God. Now, the same happens with Muslims and with other religions as well, where some people will flick a switch and will actually turn a corner Taken under the wing of a pastor or whatever, yeah, and, that and, happens. So, so and, we, see, and we know that's illusionary. Yeah, but and, and in terms of day to day normal life okay, for people there in would a be society, all sorts of uh, salvation. You know, there's sort of op shops and things, soup kitchens, all sorts of things that are run by Christian groups. So there are that's some it? things that are 
That's it. You don't think there's any principle or any ideas in Christianity? Hang on a minute. You ask me, and I've kept talking and giving examples, and you're telling, and you're telling me, are they bad examples? I I think you can find those in just about any country, regardless of the religion. That's my point. So that's all you've got. No, but, that's all you. But, but Paul, all I haven't stopped them. talking, and you're saying, "Is that all that's you've right. got?" Like, all right. I, Keep talking. You know. So, Keep talking. You said, "Give me some." Exa- you don't think Christianity's done any good, and I'm <laughs> like, I'm nonstop yes, I'm telling you some good things it's done, and you keep saying to me, you keep interrupting me, Sorry. and saying, "Is that it? Is that it? Is that the only thing?" Keep going. So, um, so it's a it's a th- it's obviously a powerful influence in our culture. But it is carrying stories and narratives that we had anyway. So, uh, in the same way that uh, cultures that don't have Christianity uh, carry these notions through them in whatever cultural norms they have, mm. uh, of course, Christianity adopts some of these. So, it's a carrier of ideas, mm. some of them good and some of them bad, but I none agree. of them that I would sense are, are unique to Christianity that we wouldn't have got without Christianity. And in many cases, it's thwarted the spread of good ideas because it's mucked it up with a whole bunch of bad ideas. So are you, are you suggesting that we're much better off because of Christianity than we would have been had it not arisen? Is that... Is that I, I, Bearing in mind we've got I really, 31 topics to get through here. No, I really don't know. <laughs> I really don't know, but I'm, I'm open to discussion on the idea. You've been listening to too much Jordan Peterson. I, I think but. more importantly is... I, I don't listen to Jordan Peterson but, but, but regularly the, at all. But this is the Jordan Peterson argument. Well, I don't, just, I don't know just, it. Just, I don't know Jordan Peterson's religious argument yeah, at all. Yeah, I'm okay, sorry. well, I'll give it to you now. If Jordan so Peterson, don't accuse me of being a Jordan Peterson acolyte, please, because uh, uh, I'm not. Okay, but he's... he's no, there's a guy called Tom Holland, a right. British historian, who right. has written some interesting stuff about right. the Middle East. Right. And he, I haven't read the book, but I'm curious to see it. He's written a book where he makes the case that Christianity has actually made a positive contribution to European cultures. But as I said, I haven't read the book, so I don't know mm. what his argument is exactly. Mm. Um, so Jordan Peterson um, basically has this view that Christianity is such a strong force in our, in our culture mm. that we have adopted the morals of Christianity, even if we are atheists and think yeah. that we haven't of that we've, we've uh, by osmosis, mm. adopted Christian values is the sort of Jordan Peterson line. So, okay. Um, but it depends on your branch of Christianity. Like when you look at the Protestants, it's really do you have faith in God and do you believe in the Bible and you're off to heaven? There, there isn't a lot of moral um, instruction in a, in a Protestant ethic about forgiveness of your fellow man. It's more concerned with... Do you have faith in the Lord, and that's what you need to have in order to get to heaven? They're not really concerned. I with don't your, agree with you. With I your, think I think there's a very strong element of forgiveness in Christianity. In, in, but which, and when, when but, I think but about not all branches is what I'm saying. And so in the Protestant branch, it's, it's it's. I went to a Protestant church as a child, and I have to say that even though I rejected, you know, the whole lot of it, mm. you know, mm. basically from my late teens onwards. Mm. Um, and I went to church and Sunday school and youth club and all that for years and years and years, so I got a lot of it. What, but when I think back, what did I take from it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, 
I tend to think maybe the, the, the idea that, you know, if people do something bad to you and then they sort of say, oh, sorry, you know, I was wrong, I made a mistake, you, you say, okay, that's cool. But you what, forgive them. What's the Bible story that, that exemplifies forgiveness? I don't remember. Do you? Uh, prodigal son. Maybe. He didn't. Um, he forgave the son for running off. Right. That's probably the closest. The son decided he didn't want to, you know, obey the family rules. He ran off to have a, a fast life, and then things didn't go so well. So he came back home. Is that the and, one? And, and, and was forgiven. And then the other son was, was jealous. Or something. Yes, because because his father told him to go off and kill the fatted calf, right, uh, and to prepare a feast for his brother's return. Yes. Ah, yes, yes. Because he was forgiven for okay. running off. Yeah, that's probably the closest that yes. I can think of. Yeah. yeah. Any others? There are a lot of different variations in Protestant Christianity too, of course, which mm. you're aware of. You know, mm. you can't just say Catholicism and Protestant. Mm. I mean, it's much more diverse than that. Mm. Mm. Anyway, we've digressed. We have, <laughs> as <somewhat>. we do, <laughs> which is okay. Uh, in the chat room, keep going in the chat room. Um, uh, it was Alex Hawke we were talking about, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> and you don't like him because he's a member of the... Um, Pentecostals. Pentecostals, yes. I just don't know how much Christian charity you're going to get out of Alex Hawke based on the quotes that I just gave. Mm. And um, the whole ethos is if you're poor, you deserve it because you didn't work hard. Yes. And Mm. God doesn't favour you. That's Calvinism. Yeah. Predestination. And it's sort of uh, the Pentecostals quite like this prosperity gospel stuff. They're into that. They are. Yeah. Look, Israel and Palestine has been in the news a bit lately, and I thought in the next five minutes we would just solve the whole Israeli-Palestinian problem. Do we even need ten minutes? Yep. So um, uh, I I think there's been a change of attitude a little bit about Israel in the last sort of year or two, I think. It seems to me. I think think there's a bit of a turning of the tide against Israel – it does seem to be popular to bash Israel these days. Yeah. Yeah. It's been popular for decades to bash but, Israel. But you know what the word that's being used that I think is making a difference, and I'm going to get my pronunciation wrong here, but apartheid or apartheid is a description that's being used to describe current state of affairs. And I think that's having an effect where people are going, hmm, it is kind of an apartheid state where people are being treated very differently based on... Uh, well, not so much skin colour, but religion. Ethnicity. Yeah, yeah, ethnicity. And I think that's sticking. I think that is actually having an effect on this and people are um, starting to question a bit more the Israeli position. But is it so, really apartheid? Well, um, let's talk about it. So have you got on the, on the, the map? Not yet. Yeah. So um, if you're listening just to the audio version... Um, somewhere, go to the show notes and you'll see some maps. But basically, I think this helps explain the position because if you haven't really looked at a map of Israel and understood what's going on in terms of the transition of the territories, it's hard to understand what's really going on there. So uh, on the screen, we've got a map of uh, Israel, which was basically the agreement that took place after the Second World War as to how that sort of area was going to be divided up between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And basically... 
um, Israel, long skinny shape running north to south, and there were three islands of Palestinian sort of enclaves that were going to take place in that territory, and that was going to be the division. It was going to be two states, and the Palestinians would control these three little islands, and the Israelis would control uh, the remainder, and there would be some sort of joint, well, there's going to be some independent overseeing of the area of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That was... That was the plan back in 1947-48. And um, up until that time, the British were in charge under the British mandate. And as soon as they left, there was a big war. And basically the neighbouring Arab states joined with the Palestinians in fighting against the Israelis. Not with the Palestinians. Uh, well, uh, with the Arabs. Just the uh, neighbouring Arab the, states. The neighbouring Arab states. up. Uh, yes, but they would have been... Within the existing Israeli-Palestinian territories were Israelis and Palestinians. No, there was uh, there was no PLO in 1948. But, but there were non-Israelis who would have joined with the Arab states. How do you want to describe them? I think that's an assumption on your part. Did they just do you stand ha- by have, have you read? No, well, uh, I, I, my understanding is most of the Palestinian people, you know, common people who lived there at the time probably just, you know, kept their heads down and tried to stay out of the line of fire. It, it, it was very much a power because grab it, between the, yeah. t- the multiple states. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. Egypt yep. and Jordan and yeah. Syria just all made a, an agreement that they would all invade Israel at the same time and, you know, and the existing, beat them up. And the existing Palestinians on the ground? I don't think they were involved. They just stood on the side and watched? There was a um, an Arab terrorist group who came mm. from Syria mm-hmm. uh, in the late 1930s or 40s. I forget what it was mm-hmm. now. I was reading about it this afternoon. And they were murdering Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a an Arab terrorist organisation that had come in from Syria, was what I read, I think. And they were they were murdering Jews. So there was a, a ter- an Arab terrorist element, but it wasn't the PLO as we know them now. They, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call and it I the don't PLO. Think, but I, mean, I, I read nothing mm-hmm. that indicated uh, Palestinian civilians were actively involved okay. in that war. Um, they certainly. Uh, so Arab leaders and governments rejected it. Uh, the peace, well, the divide, the dividing up of the territory. Um, so, well, they uh, didn't want a Jewish state there at all. Yeah. So that's why they invaded to to eliminate it. Yes, and I can't imagine that the Palest- the Arabs living there, who were told this is now Israeli land, said, "Okay, take my land uh, for your state of Israel." Of course, they wouldn't. So, you know that so, you know that so. Jewish Jewish people and organisations yeah. were buying land yes. from the late eighteen eighties. Yes, I, I'm just struggling land. with this concept that the that the Arabs who were there, the non Jews, stood idly by during this and didn't pick a side. So, so the Palestinians. Why mind. wouldn't they? Well, I mean, if you don't have a gun, Trevor, yeah. and there are you know there's an army invading from that side, yeah. and yeah. you got the the Jewish army and, sort of fighting. Yeah. What would you do if you didn't have a gun? You'd keep your head down, wouldn't you? You'd try to stay out of it. Okay. Um, wouldn't you? So if you don't know. have a weapon, you're if, not in if, the game. If, if my Arab brothers are running over the hill and they're trying to kick out these 
but they're not your Jews, Arab brother, brothers. Uh, who they're, they're different tribes. Uh, are they kind of kick out the Jews who have taken my land under this agreement? With yeah, I don't the British, think I don't not? think the Palestinians were any kind of unified okay. nation of people. To be honest, okay. And the Jews were paying top dollar for the land they bought. Mm-hmm. They were paying a lot more than probably the land was worth. And they, I, what I read, and it could be wrong, but what I read was they were mainly buying land that was either uninhabited or very sparsely inhabited because they didn't really want to alienate the uh, productive, agriculturally productive local Palestinian Arabs. There was a civil war before the other countries came into the event. Sorry? There was a civil war. Oh, in Israel. There was a a war between the the Jewish nationalists and the British uh, governing uh, elements there. And there was a – and, you know, I think you you made a note of it in your notes. actually invented modern terrorism. Mm. Well, Begin, you know, Menahem Begin, who became prime minister, he he was in one of the terrorist groups that blew up a hotel in Jerusalem and killed about 70 or 80 people or something. British army base. Yes, and um, I think that was a big incentive for the British to leave, wasn't it? Because they realised that they were, uh, they had a big problem on their hands and so I think they just sort of washed their hands of it and said, no, we're going home now. Um, Just coming back to the maps then, so uh, irrespective of what the actual involvement of the -the on-the-ground non-Jewish people were at the time when the neighbouring Arab states invaded. Mm-hmm. At the end of the war, there was um, basically the Israelis ended up with a lot more territory than what was designed under the original uh, sort of plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we then had was this um, uh, a Gaza Strip, which was just near uh, Egypt and uh, when you're looking at the map on the right-hand side of Israel, which is basically the eastern side neighbouring Jordan, was an area now known as the West Bank. And that patch there, uh, the West Bank, is what's sort of the main trouble spot at the moment um, in terms of the settlements. Oh, so, the settlements, yes. Yeah. So, um, so that... West Bank area, incidentally, we mentioned this before we started recording. Um, even though it's on the eastern side of Israel, why is it called the Western Bank and uh, the West Bank? And that is because Jordan actually named it. It's on the western side of the Jordan River. So, so that's uh, the West Bank. Then there was another Six Day War back in 1967, and at the end of that, Israel basically had control of the entire region, including that West Bank area. Okay, why was there a war first, Trevor? Let's uh, not gloss over it too much. Because you tell me, Paul. Egypt attacked. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, Egypt uh, bought a whole lot of weapons off the Russians, or the Soviets, I should say. Mm. And they said, you know, we're going to go in and, you know, whoop these Israelis' asses. Mm. It'll all be over in a flash. And it was. <laughs> they got their asses. <laughs> they whooped. did. They did indeed. Um, so basically, Israel then had control of this whole West Bank area, and, and also the whole of the peninsula Elat. Uh, um, the, a lot of the extra territory towards Egypt. Is yeah, that yeah, the yeah. huge peninsula yeah, off yeah. towards. Oh, the Egypt. Sinai Peninsula. Yeah. Sinai. Yeah, 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 it was captured by the Israelis. Mm. But just dealing with this um, left bank area, uh, West Bank, West Bank. Sorry. <laughs> 
left bank thinking Paris. That's right. Yeah. You're a very cultured gentleman, yeah, aren't you? Yeah. So in this area, after this war, uh, basically Israeli settlers just started moving in and taking, taking up plots of territory mm. not nece- and, just, and just started, well, not swarming, but basically moving in and started settling in these areas. And it was a bit of a, uh, a legally grey area in terms of, well, they just had this war, they've taken over this area, and they just started moving in and just kept moving in over time. And so in this whole left bank area, you've got these pockets and these islands of, of territory that have been controlled by Jews, Israelis. Mm. And, and living next to other you, pockets. Do you think they were mainly sort of religious Jews? I don't know. You sort of get the sense that they had to be quite hardcore to be up yeah. for the fight. I, I don't but, know, but that's um, the feeling I get, yes. is that they were people who were motivated by the sort of, you know, the myth of Israel being a gift from God yes. and that the land was rightfully theirs, so why wouldn't they go and live in it, you know, yes. that sort of idea. And I'm not saying I agree with it, yep. but I think that was at least part of the reasoning. So anyway, over time, increasing numbers um, pour into this left bank area and you just have these dotted pockets all over the area where you've got these pockets of Jews living in amongst um, uh, pockets of Palestinians. Mm. Um and it really is a random sort of collection of different blotches on the map that you can see where these different groups are. And after the Oslo Accord, they basically um, tried to formalise these little islands or pockets. So there was a zone, an A zone, which was basically Palestinian government and Palestinian security control. Then there were these B zones, which were Palestinian government control, but Israeli security control. And then the rest of the area was full Israeli control. And what you find now on the ground in Israel, well, in the 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 West Bank, Bank, Mm. are are these pockets of Israeli settlements that are really quite nice in many Mm. cases, and pockets of... Palestinian areas that are not nearly so nice and and these flyover freeways that connect the Israeli pockets to the main land, if you like, of Israel, um, where they go through these narrow freeway corridors joining up these pockets so that um, so that they can access the main um, parts of Israel. And mm. when you really look at that, you think, what a mess, and how can this ever be resolved when you've got these groups who hate each other, it's a mess, who right? are so, um, thanks, Joe, so enmeshed in each other with these little pockets everywhere, and mm. on your left side will be a. Uh, it, it's an amazing sort of map to look at. So I mm. I recommend looking at the left bank and looking at a map of the Israeli and the Palestinian all the Israeli settlements and the Palestinian towns and getting a feel for what a jumbled mess it is and how could anything ever good come out of that. But yeah, How do they ever set it right, you yes. have to ask, because, it, as you say, it's mm. a mess, mm. complete mess. Yes, and, well, some people would say from the very beginning that was 
always going to be the case. That well, this was destined for disaster. Mm. And one of the people who said that was Einstein. Mm. So I've got some quotes here from Einstein. And um, two years before the state of uh, declared its independence in 1948, Albert Einstein described the proposed creation of Israel as something which conflicted with the essential nature of Judaism. Um, so he couldn't understand why Israel was needed and said, I believe it is bad. And he was asked to help out at times and he refused. He was even asked to be Israeli's president at one point mm. in 1952, but he turned it down. And um, there's a, a copy of an, uh, a letter which Einstein wrote saying, when a real and final catastrophe should befall us in Palestine, the first responsible for it would be the British and the second responsible for it, the terrorist organisations built up from our own ranks. I'm not willing to see anybody associated with those misled and criminal people. He was quite critical of the Israeli leadership that was behind all this. He saw them as terrorist organisations. Mm. So I'm, I'm sorry, I can't help but notice mm. he made a spelling mistake. I uh, know English wasn't his first language, but... <laughs> yeah, well... Um, should be no, built rather than built. Yes. That's uh, minor point. Yeah. Well, he was doing it on an old typewriter. And, they, and when you look at the letter, you can see that it wasn't easy to fix up mistakes on a typewriter. Yeah. No, yeah. that's true. Mm. So anyway, I thought that was interesting that Albert Einstein, um, and he never visited the State of Israel. So mm. It's a bit of a flawed concept from the beginning. Mm. And if we're wondering why can't we fix it, it was probably because maybe it was just a flawed concept. You know that there was actually a proposal that they were going to buy an area in the Kimberleys. Vaguely. Yeah, vaguely. Vaguely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Given the irrigation schemes they've done for Israel. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's there now and uh, it's a reality. Mm. What do we do about it? Or what do they do about it? It's not up to us, of course. But, I mean, I was listening to Christopher Hitchens this afternoon and I've also heard Sam Harris speak on the topic and I think both of them regard the idea of Israel as a mistake from the beginning. Mm. Um, the idea of creating a state based on one religio-ethnicity mm. is a flawed one, deeply flawed, particularly coming from you know, atheist philosophers like those guys. Mm. And I agree with them. But Sam Harris, uh, and, and I think Christopher Hitchens also, he's, they basically said, look, it was a flawed concept from the beginning, but it's there now. You can't just undo it, you know. Mm. It's now a functioning state and it's, you know, it's a, it's a functioning society. You can't just say, oh, you guys were a mistake, clear out, go somewhere else. It's just not going to happen, obviously. Mm. So we have to find some kind of solution, if that's possible, mm. that uh, accommodates everybody who's there. And that's going to be really difficult. I think everybody agrees. I don't think the, the I don't think Israelis are going to give the Palestinians full citizen rights and full access to some. Some of them the are citizens, of course. Mm. I, but and they even in the new government they have uh, a, an Arab party as part of the new coalition. Mm. I listened to a podcast, um, History Hit, mm -hmm. uh, and there was an interview with Daniel Finkelstein who was talking about the foundation of the Jewish state mm. and said that after the Second World War, well, in fact, before then. But um, the Jews had been in the middle of all the European conflicts of the 19th century. Mm. 
And every time one invading force came across and kicked the other lot out, the Jews always got the blame. And they felt that they would never be safe in anything other than a country of their own, which is where Zionism came from. Yes. Was this idea that they were always the scapegoat. Mm. Uh, And that wherever they were going to be, they would always be at war. So it was better that they were at war in their own country with their own defence rather than relying on a third party. Mm. And you can understand where they came from. Absolutely. Yes, but but it required them to, to... to seize territory, yes, yes, but they started by buying it, Trevor, and that's the point. They, you know, the Zionists, the Zionists as a political movement, started in the late nineteenth century, yep. and they went to Israel and started buying land, paying top dollar for what was, according to what I read, pretty much unused or well, very, you know, marginally well, used. Well, if land. they if they'd continued just yeah, buying land, yeah. then that would have been okay. It would have been better, but they didn't. <laughs> but the point Joe made is a very valid one, and that's as as you said, that's where Zionism came from. And Zionism, by the way, is not apartheid. Zionism is just the idea that Jews need their own homeland. Mm. Now, whether or not it's Palestine that was granted to them by God, that's a whole different question. Well, that's mythical, of course. Yeah. Tom in, the, uh, Tom in the chat room says, completely agree with 12th man in jail on this. Mm. Are you two agreeing? I don't know that we're agreeing, no. but that I can certainly understand it's, it's a very mm. difficult question mm. um, because the Jews have been atrociously treated for a thousand years. Mm. Yes. Mm. And when the other people or some journalists have called on America to act, is that because... America's the superpower or because they have seven and a half million Jews in America? Or, or because the Jewish state was funded with American military hardware. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be uh, probably and they, why. And they, they still get a, a certain amount of like they, they free military stuff. Yeah, yeah. They, right. The Americans give them aid. They, they would call okay. it military aid, but, you know, it's like yeah, high tech, the best they, weapons that you can buy. Okay. Because they have some influence over them, I guess, is why yeah. they'd be calling yeah. on them to say, okay. well, you've got some influence. You wouldn't call on the Russians because they wouldn't have any influence. Yeah. yeah. But if they if they were to, you know, heed that call, what were what are their options? Oh. Like they asked for a ceasefire, they pretty much got one. I don't they? think the Americans have that much exactly. leverage, Sway. to be honest. Yeah. No. No. I think that the Israelis are a very what would you say, self-sufficient, mm. proud and determined bunch. And if the American president said to them, we're going to stop military aid to you if you don't do what we say, I think the Israelis would tell them to get fucked, basically. Mm. I, I think they would just say, you don't sell us weapons, we'll buy them somewhere else. But That's we right. are, yeah, we'll, we are we'll doing... We'll make them ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And they do. Yes. They have a very prosperous high-tech industry in I, Israel. I, I, I've seen a quote. And I don't know that this is true, but effectively Israel doesn't have friends. It just has... Uh, Customers. Business. Well, uh, Customers just, and suppliers. Just, just useful, non-interested people. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, and therefore the relationship with America is a little one-sided. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, <laughs> Judaism was the first religion that was... The, the religions up until that point in time, people were polytheistic in many ways and and really what's your religion i don't care like the people had their own religions and they chop and change and if they needed a god for the weather they had a god for the weather and if they had a god for uh prosperity they'd turn on that one or mm. or call on that one and 
Judaism was the first one to say, we're a special people and we are different to the rest of you. And in some sense... But they were they, polytheistic in the beginning. They were. Yeah, but yes. by the end they weren't. No. So, and, and that's sort of coming back to bite them where they've created... A, they were the start of, of, of quite a divisive religious um, notion, I think. So they're sort of reaping a little bit of what they sowed yeah. right from the very beginning. I, I don't think Judaism is unique in terms of a religion that creates problems for the people that use it. No, but it was the first to come along and really Hinduism, promote that. Hinduism sort of, is probably um, just as old and it mm. creates all kinds of... Oh, it's older. Mm. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. And, and did Hindus consider themselves to be special people and other people are yes. lesser people? Yes, they do. Right. In fact, I remember years ago when I first started travelling overseas and I mm. took a flight with Air India. Mm. And I don't know if someone told me, I read it somewhere, that Hindus, because of their class system, if you're not a Hindu, you're technically in the lower caste. You're, you're, a, you're a non-caste person. Right. And therefore... You're equal to the untouchables. Right. So, yes, they do. I'm not saying all Hindus in this day and age look down on non-Hindus. I'm not suggesting that at Mm -hmm. all. But traditionally in Hinduism, if you were not a Hindu, you were of a lower level Mm -hmm. than them. So, yes, they did have Mm -hmm. certain certain attitudes towards non-Hindus that are perhaps comparable Mm -hmm to the attitudes Jews had to non-Jews and Christians had to non-Christians and Muslims have to non-Muslims and uh-huh. etc. And I guess with Pakistan, then they are sort of uh, in India and having the same problems. Yep. Yep. Um, where does Australia sit in terms of Israel? And I've got an article here where, dear listener, if you're new to this podcast, all the show notes appear on the website and there's the articles and you can read all this and there's all sorts of links. So... Check out the website at some stage and have a look at all the notes. So um, got this link to an article and basically the argument is that our current Australian government is one of the most pro-Israeli governments that we've had in our history, according to this writer. Um, And what he said is that, for example, a few short weeks after Morrison took office in August 2018... He proclaimed that his government would now recognise Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And it seems one of the reasons for that, dear listener, is that under Pentecostal theology, the, um, what is it when they are, it's not revelation, it's not, it's... The end of times. Yeah, the end of times, when you're going to be drawn up into heaven. It starts with R, and I always, this word is on the top tip of my tongue, but essentially they feel under their theology that that can't occur until um, Israel, well, till Jerusalem is handed back properly to the, to the Jews. And at that point, it opens the opportunity for the second coming of the Lord and, and the end time. So, and a lot of them so believe there, there will be a... Rapture, a, thank you, is the word. Yep. But before that, a lot of them believe there will be a, a big war mm. in in the Israel if, area. And if that's necessary... Prior to the second coming. And if that's necessary in order to get the second coming, well and good is, is the theory there. So um, other examples or things we don't know about is Australia's record uh, in the UN. So um, uh, what we've got here again 
For good measure, Morrison also announced that he would instruct Australia to vote against a motion for the Palestine Authority to chair a meeting of the Group of 77 Developing Nations affiliated to the UN. In that vote, out of 146 countries, only three voted against it. Australia, the USA and Israel. So this is just to chair a meeting of developing nations and we joined Israel and the US in voting against Palestine being able to do that. Um, but the UN is really a corrupt body now, you have to admit. It's a really corrupt body. You know, the, the Human Rights Commission, mm. it's chaired by Saudi Arabia, is it? And China is on oh. it. I mean, it's literally stacked with countries with appalling human rights records. Mm. So you can imagine the Australian government being a little bit cynical about... Uh, this is the same Australian the government Nations. that calls for the rule of international law and yeah. and uh, let's get China into line and send some inspectors in. But I, I digress. You know, he's all happy to rely on these international bodies when it suits him. Yes. Who is? Morrison. Is he? Yeah. Exhibit A I just gave you. So, um, okay. Um, just I don't moving think on. He's relying on it. Well, calling just- on them. I think he's just offering an opinion or some guidance. Mm, Calling on them. Uh, So in terms of moving the embassy to Jerusalem, uh, Morrison wanted Australia to join uh, only two other countries that would have their embassies in Jerusalem, and that was going to be um, the American embassy that Trump had proposed and that of Guatemala. So so we're in the category of America and Guatemala on that score. Uh, and it was uproar and threats to Australia's exports. Um, Malaysia, Indonesia, various others complained, so we backed down from that one, if you're wondering. Um, uh, also, um, we ended up in a minority of two at the UN Human Rights Council last June opposing three motions that condemned Israeli expansions. In this, we were partnered only by the Marshall Islands, the tiny US client state with a population of 58,000. So um, so Australia and the Marshall Islands were the only ones in that particular vote. That's just odd company to be keeping in terms of UN votes, I would have thought. <laughs> Saudi Arabia being the United Nations... Uh, women's rights. Oh, mm. Paul's mentioned that. He's already mentioned that. Yes, right. the failings of the UN <laughs> bodies. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and Iran's on it too now. I, I I read. I think today or yesterday, Iran has been appointed to the body that oversees, you know, women's affairs, women's rights. Can you believe it? Iran. Mm. So we've got some strange voting records in the UN. To that, police oh, it or is it a point as, of encouraging Well, they're on the council. In, right. I don't know exactly what, what such in a body does, role. but mm. surely they would be involved in, you know, allocating funds to various programs to benefit women, mm. wouldn't they? I assume. Mm. Don't know. That's... Alarming. Don't know. And (laughs) I also read that three women in Iran have recently together been uh, given a a total of 30 years in jail between the three of them for refusing to wear the hijab and for encouraging other women not to wear it. Mm. 30 years Mm. between the three of them. 
and they're on the Women's Rights Council. Mm. It's appalling. So is America. Mm. Sorry? America's on the Human Rights Council. But they don't make women wear the hijab. <laughs> no, but they commit plenty of human rights atrocities around the globe. <laughs> Just saying. I think that's a stretch, Trevor. Atrocities. They don't. They're not really. They're not locking really? up tens of thousands of their own people like the Chinese are. Atrocities. But America hasn't been involved in atrocities. Of course, they have historically regularly. since the second in the Cold War era. They haven't been involved in dozens of atrocities. Dozens of atrocities. Yeah. Really? Yeah, mm. they haven't been. I'm pretty sure it's in your notes. So, it is. What yeah. has the US done that China hasn't? Yeah, where did Should I we put go that? There? Where they're, is tra- that? they're Trevor's notes, Shay. <laughs> they are not from a history book. <laughs> it's just a summary uh, of history. Mm. It's a summary of your interpretation of history. Oh, is what it God. is. Do I have to find that? Uh, okay. What has the US done that China hasn't? This is from John Menadieu. I mean, what would he know? This is John Menadieu himself. He's I mean, an old lefty. So, what would what, so, what, he what, obviously he, hates America worked, as much as you worked, do? Worked for News Corp, oh, the old yes. lefty. Seriously. Former ambassador. So, oh, what have they done? Uh, invaded and killed people in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, we know. The Dominican Republic, Haiti, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, and Granada. We've been through all Engineer this before. Engineered coups, Tatar in Chile, El Salvador, Yugoslavia, Honduras, Colombia, Vietnam, and more. Imposed sanctions denying food and medicines to Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, and Iran. So. You know, blame America so, for Venezuela still? You so, blame America for Cuba still? Uh, their own sanctions. governments. Their own governments are the in, problem in those countries. Imposing sanctions, denying food and medicine to those countries. So, um, so yes, I do. And anybody who wants to read up on those will come to a similar conclusion, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, um, back up to where we were. Uh, we're going to get to Dark Emu very soon. But before we do, because <laughs> you guys are already arguing over that today, there's a very interesting case happened where the, uh, there was an environment minister, Susan Lay, who was making a decision about, I think, extending a mine, a massive extension to a coal mine. And eight teachers and an 86-year-old nun launched a case to prevent the minister from approving this massive coal, coal mine. And... Uh, in the federal court, the federal court justice Mordechai Bromberg found. Mordechai. Thank you. It's a Jewish name, it isn't is. it? It is. Sounds uh, very Jewish, yeah. Mordechai Bromberg. Yeah, he found that the environment minister had a duty of care not to act in a way that would cause future harm to young people. So he found that, in fact. It's possible for a group of young people to take the environment minister to court and say, this mine is going to um, dump all this carbon into the atmosphere, which is a danger to us, and we want the minister to owe us a duty. We think the minister owes us a duty of care and should be stopped from approving the mine. Now, in the end, the judge said, I agree with you that there is a duty of care, I'm not going to give you the injunction just yet because I'm not sure that she's demonstrated she's going to make the decision in favour of the mine. So, but basically the principle that a group of young people could, could claim a duty of care 
and stop a minister from opening a mine is an extraordinary legal event. Dear it's listeners. extraordinary. Yes. It's absolutely extraordinary. I, I, th- I think it, it sets a precedent that says that government ministers can't act in the short-term interests. They have to act in the long-term interests. But in that case, but, they would need a crystal ball. I think that there are some things that are predictable. Climate isn't predictable into the future. I mean, who knows what what the climate's going to be doing in 10 years or 100 years? Nobody knows that. No, but we can predict what our impact will be. I don't think we, can't we can in, predict it Predict a meteor strike. <laughs> well, I mean, Trevor, do you recall, it was probably a couple of years ago when we were talking about... Um, you know how some people, and you still hear them from time to time, Australians saying we need a, we need a Bill of Rights. Mm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes. Are you in favour of that, Shay? No. Why not? Just briefly. Uh, well, I, in brief, briefly, it's, doesn't that mean we have to appoint judges to... Yes, and yeah. this was Trevor's, if I understood you correctly, Trevor, you were not Did in favour of activist judges who... Mm. You know, because we have a, we have a parliament, we, we have a legislature which decides, you know, through the people we vote into parliament, they decide what our laws are going to be. It's not up to our judges to make our laws for us. And well, here we well, have well, an example of an activist judge who no. thinks he is going to twist the arm of the government who mm. make the laws mm. and force them to do his bidding. Can I actually He's um, an activist judge. just clarify my reasons? Okay. Because in relation to a Bill of Rights, what that was, that when you're drafting a Bill of Rights, they naturally have to be quite broad. Mm. You have the right to freedom of speech. You have the right to association. You have the right to not be vilified. And you, natu- you by their nature, had to have quite broad brush um, notions mm-hmm. that would compete against other notions and that there would be a big crossover that you would then be relying on judges yeah. to discern where the crossover points met. And it becomes and, a legal picnic. And that was where <laughs> I said, uh, no, you need um, – that's too much leeway mm. for judges to – be making up the laws yes, in that situation. Exactly. Yep. So, so we should leave it to the parliament to but, make but the that laws. that doesn't mean that judges can't make laws. Well, they should enforce the law, surely, rather than well, there's make two it up. what he's doing. Well, well, there's two sources of law, No, Paul. he's not. He's making it up. But, Paul, there's two sources of law, generally. Yeah. We have our parliament's past legislation that says, in the event of A, B and C, then X, Y, Z results. Mm-hmm. And we have a law that is written down and says that. But we have laws of negligence that are not written down in statute. They are developed by case law over time Mm -hmm. where if you um, have a soft drink bottle manufacturing business and somehow a snail gets into the bottle Mm. and somebody drinks from the bottle and the bottle's a dark colour so they can't see it and they ingest the snail and they get sick, then you will be responsible for the damages mm. because it's foreseeable that this could happen. So, mm-hmm. so laws are made by judges in the common law. Yeah, I see what you mean. And, and this is actually deriving straight out of that common law duty of care mm. because it's saying, it's yeah, the phrasing of it is all about, um, I'll just come back to the case here where it says... Um, 
Uh, coherence, control, vulnerability and reliance all assume special relevance in an assessment of whether a novel duty of care should be recognised. And that's what this is, is a novel mm. duty of care. This is taking that, that negligence and f- applying it to a minister, making a decision. Mm. Um, and, and when it comes to negligence normally, the way they look at it is, was it reasonably foreseeable that if you did that thing, you might have injured somebody and cause that possible injury. Mm. And so uh, reasonable foreseeability strongly favours the recognition of a duty of care. In mm. totality, in my view, the relations between the minister and the children answer the criterion for the intervention by the law of negligence. So <laughs> it's an expansion of the law of negligence is what has happened here. Mm. It's an extraordinary case. And if you're still listening, um, warehouse guy, whatever you've called yourself, uh, as a young lawyer, you appreciate this case is a big one. Um, so a reasonable minister for the environment ought to have the children in contemplation when facilitating the emission of a 100 I think, megatons of CO2 into the Earth's atmosphere. It follows that the applicants have established that the minister has a duty to take reasonable care to avoid causing personal injury to the children when deciding under this Act to approve or not approve the extension project. That is a fascinating case. So interesting one, that one. See if it's appealed or where it ends up. But um, Extraordinary. But I think yeah. it's, a, it's a, an example of an activist judge who... Right seems to think he has some sort of power to influence. The coal mine people didn't respond Mm. that way. Mm. How did they respond? They were like, yeah, fine. Minister's got a duty of care. Fine. They didn't serve the injunction. Mm. We're still good. Mm. They might have been keeping their power dry. They claimed it was a victory, but they didn't get the injunction. That's right. But it was on a technicality because he was just waiting to see whether the minister was... More like, uh, let me just see. Um, how, how far over the minister the, would the, bend? The applicants have not satisfied the court that it is pros- probable that the minister will breach, breach the, the duty, duty of care in making her decision. They have not satisfied the court that they will have no further opportunity to apply for injunctive relief. I, I think what he's getting at is if she decides okay, to allow the mine, come and see me. Okay. It's kind of what between the lines there. Okay. So it's not good for the mining groups at all. Oh, good. Yeah, they were claiming it as a victory in much the same way that Christian Porter was claiming his defamation case (laughs) was a victory. That sort of the most hollow of victories. The next question is um, whether common citizens have a duty of care not to infect their uh, fellow citizens. Well,. There was that case of the guy with AIDS from New Zealand who was a professional dancer and he he had AIDS and he had unprotected sex with people. Mm-hmm. And he was, well, there was actually a crime of, he was done for a crime. But he, but he, he did in fact infect people. Yes. well, And he could clearly have been done for a form of, neg- a tort of negligence mm-hmm. um, for, for having unprotected sex when he knew he had AIDS. So, because he caused real harm yeah. to those people. Yeah, yeah. So if you knew you had COVID-19 and, and then you travelled up from Melbourne and to you went Columbia. into a nursing home and purposefully sneezed all over um, the kitchen utensils just prior to a meal, you could 
It could be an action against you. Why stop there? Go out into the wards and yeah. sneeze all over the people. <laughs> or if you drove up through country New South Wales with active COVID symptoms. That's where it gets more difficult, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. But yes. So, um, so yeah. Okay. Um, how are we going for time? Still good. Um sh- you're not in danger of the shark tank at all tonight, shall you? <laughs> dark emu. We've talked about dark emu in the past, mm. and uh, this is where we lose a few of our lefty friends here, and this is one where I'm actually on your side on this one, Paul, to a large extent. So um, so dark emu, of course, no, no, no. Uh, by Bruce Pascoe, basically painting a picture of our Indigenous brothers being... Um, much more of an agricultural society than anyone else has ever claimed before. And Dark Emu was a very, very popular book and is in a children's book form, which is seemingly in a curriculum in some uh, schools, yeah, I, I think. I, I don't know, but if, if any of the listeners are working teachers in the classroom, I'd be interested to know to what extent it's been adopted because it would appear that it's a uh, you know it's not mandated by education departments as far as i'm aware but it might be sort of something that individual teachers or individual schools use as a teaching Maybe. resource so anyway and uh, i have a copy at home if you'd like me to bring it in and show you so bruce pasco is yes. um he is uh, has a position at uh university of melbourne yes and paul you wrote can i quote you or not <laughs> go ahead so in one of our Australia's premier universities creates an academic position for a person to research and presumably to teach on a field of enterprise that simply didn't exist until the person appointed, a minor writer, successfully published a book about something that genuine experts, real anthropologists, say was not actually a real thing after the intellectual left, as well as left-leaning journalists, fall over themselves to praise it you don't think anything is amiss because you're claiming something's amiss with... Um, with, with academia. Our, with our academia. So, uh, you, oh, so here, sorry, I'll just... Anyone who still doubts our universities are increasingly intellectually corrupted by woke ideas and social justice politics should look no further than Pascoe's appointment. Yes. You're right. So he's, yes. he's a professor now, right? Right. Do you know well, what I don't he's... know if it's professor, but is it professor well, or well, he's he appointed as some other... I, I saw him referred to as professor, but I don't know if that's the term they use. Do you know what his academic qualifications are? I mean, he's, he's, they've given him a chair. What are they? Actually. He's got a Bachelor of Education to teach school as a school teacher. That's it. That's his sum total academic qualifications. He was a school teacher and he did a Bachelor of Education. That's it. And then after that, he, he started his own little publishing company apparently with his wife, and he's written and published a number of books by himself and by other people. But, you know, real professional anthropologists have been working with Indigenous Australians for well over 100 years, and none of them have ever found evidence of sedentary agriculture. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, out of the blue, Pascoe comes along and says, oh, yeah, there's this, there's this, and there's this, and we, we, we devoted most of a program to this book, didn't we? We did, uh, yeah. When was it? A couple of years ago or so. Yep. And, um, you know, professional anthropologists have never, ever come across the sort of stuff that he claims was happening. And these are not people who were hostile to Indigenous people. You know, a, a lot of them 
basically dedicated their professional lives to studying these people. And if, if they'd been sedentary agriculturalists, somebody would have noticed so, before this school teacher came along and made up this. So, so I think, Paul, you probably sent to me this article from, I think it was the Sydney Morning Herald. There was one, yes. yes. Which was about this quite distinguished academic Sutton mm-hmm. and this other archaeologist, Karen Walsh, mm-hmm. who basically wrote a book which has debunked Dark emu. Yeah, and I haven't read it, and I don't think any of us have read it, so we don't know what's in it. No, but the article gives a bit of a summary of it, and I'll go into it uh, now. But before I do, um, so this book, which debunks Dark Emu mercilessly, you would agree? I don't know because I haven't read it. Oh, I don't you read think the mercilessly. I read the well, article, well, but quite, I haven't read the book, yeah, so but, I don't know okay, whether it's, it was merciless or kind. Well, it's quite scathing. Quite scathing seems to be reflected in the Sydney Morning Herald article. Yeah, yeah. and debunks dark emu. Yeah. And, unless, and unless, article, unless this article totally misrepresents the book. I the don't book think really... it debunked it, but mm. I think it discredited a lot of the views that it put. Yeah. I quickly listened to an interview of the guy who wrote it, mm. and he said that there was some evidence of agricultural in Torres Strait Islands, but that as far as Larnham Land was concerned, there was no... No evidence. Of course, to- the yeah. Torres Strait Islanders are ethnically different. You exactly. Know that. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yes, so they I do would, understand. They would that. grow tubers and yes. things like that. Yes. Which, but to say there's absolutely no evidence of these ancient histories. No, but they're not the Aboriginal people that that Pasco is talking about. In fact, Pasco. Well, he went on to say that the Aboriginal people did trade the, with the Torres Strait Islanders for yep. the for their agri- agriculture. So it's not like they didn't know. But anyway. Proceed. And but, yet, so they, they were aware of Torres Strait Islanders having agriculture and yet the Aboriginal people on the mainland never adopted it. Mm. Never. Mm. The only just... point I just want to quickly make mm. is just that it seems like an obviously great appointment because this is a place where it doesn't say in the article that he's actually going to go on to teach. So he's going to work with other researchers to discredit it. We adopt a lot of social theories that actually never get proven. By him being at a Melbourne university, there's a really good chance that everything that he's put forward is going to be totally disproved. Why would they and waste then you can money be, paying and then this you can guy? Be, because there's a, an opportunity for inclusivity and <sighs> conversations around um, better management of the land, which is topical. What's it got to do with inclusivity? Well, he's Aboriginal. No, he so, isn't. That's isn't been he? debunked too. Oh. <laughs> no, well, he, right. he claims, he claims he to be, no, but a lot of other Aborigines say, no way is yeah. he an Aborigine. Yeah, yeah. Well, and some quite prominent ones. Well, in fact, one, uh, a woman called Cashman, who's a lawyer, an Aboriginal lawyer, she, um, she, she, she took a case against him, didn't she, with the, what was it, the, I think it was Section 19, is it 19C or 17C, you know, the, uh, the, the one that they got Bolt on? Um, for for people profit. Oh no, it was uh, something about people profiting, uh-huh. profiting from claiming to be indigenous when uh, they weren't. And this Josephine Cashman, her name is, and mm-hmm. I've seen her a number of times on the ABC on chat shows. Mm-hmm. Um, she took a case against this guy, saying he's not an Aborigine and he's claiming to be one, and he's trying to get some benefit from it. But the mm-hmm. AFP dropped the case because they said they didn't really have any evidence. 
I'll just read a bit about what this article <laughs> says about the book. So who is Sutton? I, can't, I haven't got his first name here, but um, he's written or contributed to 20 books and about 200 anthropology and linguistic papers. He has been an expert anthropological researcher in 87 Aboriginal land claims since 1979. When Barrister Ron Caston presented the landmark Wick case to the High Court in 1996, he brandished a 1,000-page anthropological report entitled ACK, the Wick word for homeland, written by Sutton and others, which he said would be the foundation of the argument. The other writer of this book, Karen Walsh's work in archaeology over 35 years has included a decade at Kunalda Cave, a rich heritage site that has offered a glimpse of Aboriginal life on the Nullarbor Plain during the... Pleistocene? Pleistocene or Pleistocene? Pleistocene period. Pleistocene. Pleistocene. (laughs) Anyway, on the face of it, some reasonable credentials um, of these people who have written the book. And interesting, can I just add add one thing before Mm -hmm. you go on? So that guy Sutton was a a linguist. Mm -hmm. And and I think I read somewhere he made the point that if Indigenous people had been sedentary agriculturalists, mm. they would have had vocabulary for all those things. And he said they, they don't have it. Mm. Yes. Broman already in the chat room says, I haven't read the book either, but it's important to note that there are limitations to the expertise of authors, e.g. Peter Sutton's knowledge as an anthropologist is limited to the Wick people of Cape York. Mm. He doesn't appear to know a lot about Indigenous land and food management practices in other parts of Australia. Mm. Good point. I don't think it's a good point, frankly. I think it's a good point. No, look, if you're an anthropologist and your field is Indigenous Australians, then everything's be re- a mystery. You're going to be reading. You're going to be reading, and uh, you're probably going to have a, a curiosity about Aborigines all over the continent. And you would be, you would know something about them. You don't. Let me play. Just, yes, but he no. also claims. Let, let me play devil's advocate here. All right. You're very keen on this to say that the science is settled. Yeah. No, but I've read, I have books on, ag, on but, but Indigenous very, history. I'm playing things. devil's advocate here. You're very keen to say that the science has settled on this, yet on other discussion topics we have, you're very keen to say, oh, well, we don't know, Trevor. We don't know. It's possible. We don't know. We this, can't be sure. Can, As more evidence can, comes out, can, we might find we couldn't more. For, we couldn't can foresee I, it. Can I pull you up Who on that? Who has a crystal ball, after all? I haven't used the word science <laughs> Have I in this discussion about this guy? No, I because don't. when I did a course, <laughs> I didn't in, say you did. When I'm I did, it's your no, argument. you're saying no. Well, it's not my argument because anthropology is not science, and I clearly remember my anthropology teacher at yeah. university. Even though it's called a social science, right? We had one lesson where the 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 anthropology lecturer put the question to us. He said, "Is this science?" And we had a big discussion. And at the end of the lesson. We all came to the conclusion that no, it's not really a science. It's a, you know, it's a humanities thing. It's a bit like history, where you go around and you collect information, you know, on people. In the case of anthropology, but you know, it's a matter of logic. It's not science. It's not something you can measure in a laboratory. So, did your lecturer agree? Okay, well, uh, he told us he didn't think it was science. But Paul, the argument would still be that. You're very keen to say that our knowledge and our understanding on this topic is secure and it's and settled. Secure. It's yet, pretty secure after other, more than a century yet, of yet, work. Yet, it's yet, on other, pretty, yet, on, yet on other topics, you're quite keen to often say, we don't know how the virus is transmitted. We don't know these things. You're, the science is 
is still And developing. I was right because in Melbourne now they're discovering new means of transmission that they weren't aware of, of the virus. So my point is you're very keen to say on this one that it's clear that um, dark emu's wrong yes, and these guys clear. are right. Very clear. And ironclad, where on <laughs> other issues you're prepared to say we don't know yet what the, the final answer will be. Just so what? What's the connection? What's the connection between science and anthropology? I don't see how you can make a clear link. Okay. If you can't see it, I won't, I won't belay the point. No, I think you're just trying to put something on me and say that yeah. I'm not consistent is what you're saying. Yeah, that's, that's the point. Thank you. I get your point, but I don't agree with you. Right. It's, I mean, I've been, re- I've been yeah. reading about Aborigines for many, many years, and I have several books in yeah. my collection, and I've, you know, yeah. it's yeah. something that... But people have been reading I'm about viruses about for many years and they have lots of books in their collection and you would say to them, well, you still don't know what, what might happen or what is happening. We still don't know. So to those people, you're, prepared to, you're prepared to say you, don't, you can't be sure, yet when it comes to your own position on this, you can say you are very sure. Everything I've read yeah. about COVID over the last year and whatever mm has been conflicting opinions. So clearly right. even the, the scientists are not sure. Right. That's not just my opinion. That's right. coming from them. That's coming from epidemiologists who don't all agree. So clearly that's not, that's not my assumption. But on this, this is something that I, I have taken more of an interest in. And I, I did a whole semester-long course on Indigenous peoples of the world, not just Australians, at the University of Queensland. And... Um, I learned a lot about Indigenous people around the world in that course. It was, it was very, very informative. And I, as I said, I have several books on Indigenous okay. Australians I'm, in my collection. I'm just playing devil's advocate on this one because ultimately you are correct that dark emu is, is um, an exaggeration of nonsense. But uh, uh, <laughs> I just wanted to quiz you on that particular point okay. in your certainty in this regard. I, I so, don't know nonsense. So, it's an exaggeration of the facts. It's not even facts, Joe. Uh, let me read some. Let me just yeah. let, let me just read some of this part anyway. So, um, da, 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 um, he was. Uh, so this is Sutton. Um, nothing in Sutton's fifty years of research with senior Aboriginal people suggested to him that Pascoe was right. He was disturbed that Pascoe's description of Aboriginal life were based on, and to his mind, took liberties with. The journals of blow-through European explorers, men who were ignorant of the languages and cultures of those they met, rather than Aboriginal people, whose knowledge has been recorded for the past hundred years at least. He was stunned that the book was riddled with errors of fact, selective quotations, selective use of evidence, and exaggeration of weak evidence, including the suggestion Aboriginal people have occupied Australia for twelve, for 120,000 years. And he was outraged that school curricula were being changed to conform with the dark emu narrative, embracing Pascoe's descriptions of early agricultural society. More than anything, he felt that Pascoe had done the old people, as Sutton refers to them, a monumental disservice, resurrecting long discredited ideas of social evolutionism that placed hunter-gatherers lower on the evolutionary scale than farmers. To Sutton, it was a rebirthing of the colonial philosophy used to justify Aboriginal dispossession in the first place, that people who lived lightly on the land had no claim to it, that farmers were more deserving of dignity and respect than hunter-gatherers. I will agree with him on that point in that Pascoe does talk... 
he does beat up the agricultural credentials of Indigenous people. And in doing so, he does refer to mere hunter-gatherers, and they were more mm. than that. He is disparaging of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle as being less than the agricultural yeah. lifestyle. And that is a picture that Pasco paints in that. And Pasco does sort of skite that he used Western explorers' accounts of their journeys because he said nobody would believe the Indigenous accounts. But Sutton makes a good point that, well, Indigenous accounts are worth more in this matter than and, a Western traveller. appears to have um, yeah. pretty good knowledge of Indigenous um, accounts because he speaks their languages. Yeah. Um, uh the world of 1788 that Pasco created in Dark Emu, Sutton says, was a reimagination, not a discovery. Uh, Sutton and Walsh write um, that they went. The old people in 1788 were neither because they had developed ways of managing and benefiting from their landscape that went beyond just hunting and just gathering, but did not involve gardening or farming. They frequently used slow-burning fires to make their landscapes more livable. And on the other hand, they did not cut down bush to clear the land, plough and hoe the soil in preparation for planting, or then sow stored seed or tubers or rootstock in gardens or in fields. So he says, okay, they made changes to the landscape, but it fell short of being agricultural. Um, what they sometimes refer to as fire stick farming. Yes. Which is not really farming as we understand it. Yes. There's a section here where it, discredits Pascoe's interpretation of what Mitchell, Thomas Mitchell, wrote. Um, uh, and the part that I found interesting um, was it kind of made the point that they had observed agriculture in the Torres Strait Islands and they really didn't want to adopt agriculture because they didn't see it as being part of their culture, mm. according to Sutton. So it was a a deliberate maintaining of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle for cultural reasons yes. is how Sutton described why they didn't take up yes. agriculture. And maybe even what we might call spiritual reasons. Yes, yeah. So, uh, so all that was interesting. And it goes into quite detail and... Um, uh, here's my point, Paul. Just coming back to your quote in your email mm -hmm. where you said, anyone who still doubts our universities are increasingly intellectually corrupted by woke ideas and social justice politics should look at this. Mm. It's the appointment of Pasco. Yeah. But uh, the publisher of this book, which criticises Pasco, was the same university. So what? Well, the point is... A university is on the one hand employing PASCO in position, but on the other hand, it is actually printing and publishing yeah. a book by authors which, <laughs> which gives the contrary opinion. It's a separate so, department, though. It's the uni Melbourne well, University Publishing or University well, of Melbourne Publishing or what, whatever they call the well, company. It's part of the university. Yes, but it's and, a separate section. It's on the right. When, when you're claiming that a university has fallen into a, a woke well, spiral of... Uh, then, it's just but, one example, but, but, but one the, among many. But, but, if we went but, but looking, counter, we would find but the a counter lot. example is that the same university published a very 
strong counter argument. Yes, I'm not so, saying, I'm not suggesting that there are there there are no good intellectuals or, or there is no good intellectual endeavour taking place in our universities. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is there are a lot of flaky ideas being um, taken up by our universities, and this is one very good example of a very flaky writer who, because he published a book and a lot of people thought, oh, this is great, isn't it? This elevates the Indigenous people and makes them feel better about themselves. I saw it when, when it was first came out. I, I used to be in the habit of watching the ABC breakfast program on TV and um, they had him on that when it was first published and they gushed and fawned all over him and it was embarrassing because, you know, he was this fake, this fraud and the ABC was, you know, had him on the program like he was some kind of big deal, you know, and I thought, oh, my God, you know, it's... It's just one example, and there are others. There are, you know, lots in the humanities departments especially. Yeah, well, I just think it's to the credit of the university that they've actually published a book that, oh, that yeah. is, is totally contrary to They're that, not all so. bad. I'm not so. suggesting there's nothing good coming out of our university. I'm just suggesting. But read it again, what you are suggesting. Uh, anyone who still doubts our universities are increasingly intellectually corrupted by woke ideas and social justice politics should look at this. Yes, increasingly does not mean completely. Mm. Mm. It means it's a trend mm. and it's happening. Yeah. And well, I think that it is. Mm. Well, there's always disagreement in academia. And yet we agree that Pascoe's book is rubbish. Yeah, ultimately. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing about Pascoe's book is it's actually the most interesting parts of it were lifted from this thesis by a guy called Gittens or Gitchens. And, um, and that is a true scholarly work. And anyone interested in the topic should read that book. It costs you $120, dear listener. And I've got to get it back from my friend Noel who borrowed it from me. So you have not, it? Yes. Oh. So, and that is a fully scholarly piece. Um, and, Pasco actually got a lot of his stuff from that. And the family of that guy who wrote that other book are sort of angry with Pasco because they say, hang on a minute, this is really what our son did. He died early of, mm. I think, suicide, I'm not sure. But, um, so Pasco uh, borrowed it in a sense. He's in knowledge in the footnotes. Oh, yes, okay. It's sort of like uh, it's a very dry, scholarly, hard-to-read book, the $120 one, mm. and Pasco has given it a... Colourful interpretation, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> and sold lots of copies as a result. So, yeah, and he's laughing all the way to the bank. So, uh, so anyway, that uh, was that one. Um, let me just pick my way through some of the other topics here because it's been a while, and I'll just see which the one. audience has requested oh, friendly Geordies. Yes, friendly Geordies. Mm. So, if you're not, have you, are you aware of friendly Geordies at all, Paul? It's a activist group, isn't it, who um, give the coalition politicians a hard time or something? Yeah, it's a, it's a YouTube. Jordan Shanks and a, and a group of friends yeah. have this Friendly Geordies podcast YouTube channel. So-called and, comedian. And, uh, <laughs> Not very funny. And uh, anyway, they're young people in their 20s yeah. who it's are politically active. Have you listened Ch- to Chase's it Mark too? Mm. I haven't. But yeah. Yes. I listened to it. Yeah, I do. Mm, a a reasonable bit. amount. Oh, really? Yeah. The yes. Friendly Geordies? Yes. Oh, I've only seen that one um, 
video that he made in the bathtub of the uh, Barilaro. John, John the, Barilaro. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've yeah. seen that one. Right. I didn't think it was very funny, I have to say. I thought right. it was really juvenile and yeah. stupid. But mm. Anyway, they... Um, uh, he's regularly, he's on the left, of course, so he's attacking the right, but he's also attacking the media very often and their poor form in taking on politicians. And so he's made a big deal about John Barillaro, who I think is the deputy premier yeah. in New South Wales. He's the Wales. leader of the nationals. nationals. Which would probably make him the deputy, I think. Yes, mm-hmm. I think it does, yep. yeah. And um, anyway, Barillaro has um, taken a defamation action mm. against um, Jordan Shanks, and um, so that in itself is seen as a means of trying to silence um, political opposition, if you will. So it's you know this doesn't happen in America because of the free speech laws under their Bill of Rights in their Constitution mm. does um, mean it's um, basically public figures have to cop whatever happens to them, and it would be yeah. nice to change our laws here so that public so they figures. Do. Um, uh, uh, you know, the sort of Christian Porter thing couldn't happen in the United States, for example. And this John Barillaro suing for defamation of Jordan Shanks couldn't happen in the United States. Can you not sue for defamation? It's in much the United tougher. States? It's as a public figure, it's much much more mm. difficult. So, uh, so anyway, that defamation is is underway, and in the lawsuit, Barillaro's address is put care of Parliament House, Canberra. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Clearly incorrect. He's in New South Wales Parliament. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the producer of the Friendly Geordies happened to have the paperwork in his backpack as he was going to uni or whatever he was doing at his arts college. And on his way home, he's walking along the street and literally sees Barillaro <laughs> about to get in a car. And so he crosses the street to hand the guy the documents to basically say, well, he was going to say to him, I'm going to give you these back because the address is wrong. You know, oh. That's not your address. And Barillaro was on the phone and basically put his head down, got in his car as a passenger, and they drove off. And ignored and, the guy. And ignored the guy, over and done within a flash. And the next day, Barillaro has obviously got onto um, this uh, type of police. There's a type of a... It's not the ordinary police. It's kind of part of a counter-terrorism squad that is part of a sort of a... If you're being stalked by somebody, Uh you would be using this branch of the police and he's got them to arrest this guy at his home and dragged him off to a police station in an unmarked car Mm. and he's been charged. New South Wales Police? Uh, Well, it's a funny division of... I'm not exactly sure off the top of my head. It's a funny division that's not your standard police. It's mm. a sort of a squad that's plain clothes and and arrested him in his person's home. Fixated unit is what it's called. Ah, uh, thank, thank you. you fixated what persons, is it called? Fixated persons unit. Oh, okay. If, if if you had a Hollywood celebrity who was being mm. stalked, stalked, that would be the sort of group, sort of thing. Mm. And um, the thing is, the video evidence, like this. These guys video everything they do. When they're mm. on the phone talking to Barillaro or anybody, they put on a video. And so he had a full video of himself with this incident. Uh-huh. And it's obvious a fairly innocuous incident. And the complaint against him has several errors in it based on that video and is a real exaggeration of what happened. And anyway, he's under an injunction now where he can't have anything to do with Barillaro, can't 
have anything to do with the friendly Geordie's um, media work. And it was really a case of a kind of a worrying version of a Stasi or type thing where he's you've criticised a leader of of our of our parliament. We're going to bundle you off into a police car and and take you off and charge you. It was a really um, Sounds nasty like the sort of thing Sir Joe would do. Yeah, it was a really nasty incident. And mm. um, just harking back to what we were saying earlier with the Billawheeler family, just if you start mm. bundling people off and treating them badly, it sets a tone for your society that this is an acceptable thing to do. So that's why we need to treat people with respect if we want to be treated ourselves with respect. These things start to become a commonplace. So anyway... Um, he's got some celebrity law firm acting for him and that will be interesting. But Barilaro should be in a huge amount of trouble, you would hope, at the end of that. Um, you heard uh, about the guy yeah. in the States? Uh, was being served with a lawsuit and the guy who was serving the, the um, papers walked up to his house, saw his wife go into the garage Hand or tried to hand the papers to her as she was getting out of the car in the garage, and he's now been sued for trespass and. Um, okay, because he entered the house, effectively the garage. He menacing behaviour or something yeah, it like was, that. And yeah. again, it was filmed, and it was uh, mm. he was trying to serve yeah. him the papers for a lawsuit. Mm. So anyway, it was just a, mm. it's a bit nasty. I agree, quite nasty, and the yeah. thought that I. Um, a deputy leader could think he could do that. Yeah, but Barilaro, you know, he's a bit of a shaky character, isn't he? I mean, mm. he's been... Careful, he's, he sues for defamation. <laughs> so uh, just, just when, be when, very careful. When I, when I say shaky, I mean, you know, sometimes uh, if he's on a wet floor, he, he might lose his footing like any of us might. Yes, I see what you mean. Yes. yes Slippery but, character then. Is that what you meant? No, what, what I really meant was he's, he's, had, he's had disputes with the Premier... Yes. With Berejiklian. Mm. He doesn't always get along with um, the people in his own government, mm. you know, that he's a deputy of. But, look, I, I'm with you, Trevor. I don't like the idea of police bundling people into cars and driving them off mm. because some politician is offended by what they do. I definitely don't like think that's a good you, way you to You think go. Gough Whitlam would have said, I remember to him? Uh, what's the yeah. Gough Whitlam reference here? Uh, the National Party... Becoming, uh, having been the inheritors of the country party. Right. And whether or not he was a country member. No. You've lost me, Joe. <laughs> uh, apparently Sir Winston Turnbull shouted in Parliament, I'm a country member. I remember, said Whitlam. Who's Winston Turnbull? Right. Was a member of the country party. Really? Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> so Gough Whitlam to I'm a country member yep. said, I remember. Oh, Okay. Yes, okay. I don't get it. Can you fill Split me in? Split the word. I'm a... Okay, just go slowly. Country <laughs> member. Um, yeah. Okay, Joe. No wonder we all missed that the first time. Your, your joke at the beginning was by far the best. <laughs> right, I forget okay. what it was. But that was... You've gone downhill since then. <laughs> uh, it happens. But, you know, we have things like uh, Witness K, Bernard Colliery, mm-hmm. Secret Trials, these sorts of things. Mm. 
authoritarian tendencies. Authoritarianism is bad for us. Indeed. I was, and we need to stand up when it occurs. I agree, Trevor. That's what Julian, I've been trying to encourage Julian you to Star, do. Well, I'm the one. Uh, you know, see, That's what I was saying. I was considering arguing, your plight. I'm I'm the was one, anyone going to bail him off in a police car I'm if he the, keeps this? I'm the one arguing Satanism against <laughs> true authoritarianism. No, no. I'm the one no. arguing <laughs> against true no, authoritarianism. No, you, you argue no, against the duly elected Premier of Victoria. He is an authoritarian. You call him authoritarian? Yes. He's, he's he declared, it's an emergency, when there was a new virus in the community. He's a duly elected Premier. Meanwhile, Not elected in a, in a, to become a, in, a dictator. In an open democratic system. Meanwhile, when we've got things like Julian Assange, Witness K, Bernard Collery, um, issues like that mm-hmm. uh, where we need to be angrier and we're not as a community. Mm. And hence, that's why guys like Barilaro think they can do what they do. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There we go. <laughs> I was reading a thing about the um, Australian spies and how there is no oversight. So in the US, mm. uh, the US military, the the secret agencies, there is a Senate oversight committee that actually has control, they have to report back over what they've done, yep. where the money has been spent, and they're saying in Australia there isn't parliamentary oversight. Yep. Really? And therefore that... ASIO and, you know, the intelligence No, they, they report back directly to the Cabinet, mm-hmm. um, but there is no bipartisan oversight committee. Even in the Senate estimates, they don't have to answer questions? I, I think it disappears into a black hole. Yeah, I, I dare say they w- they wouldn't be asking them questions about things that might compromise operations, but like, but they'd so, be so in in the US. There's actually a separate committee that is yeah. bipartisan okay. that that get to see the secret stuff, mm. uh, and it's not asked publicly in Parliament. But there is oversight from both parties. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. I don't know how how much oversight there is in the Australian government over that. Mm. Do you? I mean, uh, there was a thing with Rex, Rex Patrick was complaining about some laws that were passed. There's been a lot of different laws passed recently that give a lot of power to our secret services and mm. they're quite unaccountable and it's all done in the name of counter-terrorism to keep us safe. Yeah. And oh, it sounds like COVID. It's too much um, <laughs> in that regard. So at least with COVID, we know what's going on. They, they mm. tell us. Uh, yeah, but they exaggerate home, everything. But there's things happening there that we just don't even hear about. Mm. So, all right. Well, I reckon we've just about come to the end. Right. Of, uh, you know, no, actually, I have to say, patrons. How about being a patron? We've got um, fantastic people who donate some money to the show to help cover the costs. And, dear listener, I subscribe to uh, different News Corp publications, Australian, the Courier Mail. Uh, crikey is really good. I'm very happy with my Crikey. Uh, subscription, getting lots of stuff from that. Um, other Spectator, um, have you got a New subscription Times, to Spectator? Uh, <laughs> I had Spectator, but I, I you dropped it. Yeah, oh. yeah, I did. I had it for a while just so did I could you? argue with you about Good. things. But I'm, yep, um, I can only handle that for so long. Anyway, uh, there's the cost of the website, cost of these um, bits and pieces. So. If you contribute some money, that's great because I can tell you there's not a lot left over at the end of the day. And anyway, thank you. To the patrons, starting from the most recent, I think uh, Rick O, Greg P, Shannon L, also um, Warehouse Man Tom, good on you. 
uh, Shannon League, Liam Healy, Don Toovey, Daniel Flanagan, Matt Dwyer, Sue Cribb, James Leone, Branwen Wayne, David Hamby, Yvonne Virgil, P. Slizzle, Craig Ball, Shane Ingram, Yam Yam Blue, Andrew Jackson, David Capley. David, see you in a few weeks. Got a really interesting story to tell you mm. about my brother had his school reunion last weekend. He was a year above me and the reunion was delayed because of COVID. So it was 41 years. And he was at his school reunion and he was just the year above me. And all these guys kept coming up to him going, what is your brother doing <laughs> with the Satanism stuff? Oh. Because <laughs> the article in the Courier Mail quotes me as being yes. St. James's old boy. Oh. And, uh, and then a couple of the – one of the Christian brothers, Brother Tynan, former principal of St. James, went up to Glenn twice during the day <laughs> and said, I just – What's I happened to you? I don't understand why he would do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So my 40th reunion is coming up in uh, a couple of weeks' time. Are you wearing your Noosa Temple T-shirt? I think I'll have to now. I think you will. <laughs> and I'm going to have to explain myself to um, – the they Christian brothers who turn up at the school, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, David Cately, um, schoolmate, you'll have to stand up for me, David, and explain to people that I'm not completely nuts with what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> Graham Hannigan, uh, yet another Pinker fan. John in Dire Straits, Donnie Darko, Camille, Tom Doolan, Paul Waper. Paul, uh, very generous donation. I had lunch with Paul a few weeks ago. We've got a lot of beer and a lot of spirits to get through. Thanks for the beer, that was Paul. Very generous, Paul. Thank you very much again. And um, Alexander Allen, Clinton Riggs, Matthew, Craig S, Glenn Bell, Professor Dr. Dentist, um, and oh, Adam Priest, Melinda, Murray Waper, Andy Dowling, Captain Doomsday, Peter Gillespie, Gavin S, Harry Watson, Daniel Curtin, Liam McMahon. Congratulations on your wedding, Liam. Dominic DeMassi, Matic Man, Palais, Bronwyn. Thank you for your comments, as always, Bronwyn. Kane, uh, Jimmy Spud, Tony Ward, Steve Shinners, Alison C., Ayame, Wayno, Landon Hardbottom, Craig Gladsby, Shane Louise, and Sean Hadrill. And sorry, Janelle Louise and Sean Hadrill. And also some people who don't like to use Patreon but do it through PayPal would be Mr. Anderson, Matt Mann, Mr. T, Paul Evans, Wayne Seaman, and Jared Obrad, Puscodica, Darren Giddens, uh, Watley, Greg Clark, and Dave S from Cairns. Thank you to all of those people. Next week. I'm going to do a little book review on uh, – well, we talked about morality before, and this book looks examines morality, um, basically saying the sort of conflicting ways of looking at morals. One would be the utilitarian approach, maximising human flourishing for the most number of people, versus the libertarian approach, which is maximising individual freedom of choice – and there's lots of really good case examples of the flaws that crop up when you are using those theories. And he eventually then recommends something which is comes out of Aristotle, if you like, which is uh, at the end of the day, you want a, a polis or a society that is just and and people get what they deserve and you have to make a judgment call at the end of the day. Sometimes there's just a judgment involved of something's good or something's bad. And anyway, that'll be next week, uh, book review. Can you and, give us a heads up of the title? Uh, uh, 
just um is it this one justice what's the right thing to do i think was uh i don't know if it's this one or the other one um yeah justice what's the right thing to do michael sandell okay so um so anyway that'll be next week i think i'd like to do a book review every second week and our panel in the alternate weeks so right dear listener not very inclusive is he yeah well we need to speak about some big ideas as well so yeah some meta concepts yeah. yeah all right we'll be back next week see you everyone bye it's a good night from him now the problem of transforming the ghetto therefore is a problem of power confrontation between the forces of power demanding change and the forces of power dedicated to the preserving of the status quo. Now, power properly understood is nothing but the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic change. Walter Ruther defined power one day. He said, power is the ability of a labor union like UAW to make the most powerful corporation in the world, General Motors, say yes when it wants to say no. That's power. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.